This is an epic of all epics. It is time to get into one of the great classics of cinema that when I was a child, I always thought starred Lawrence Olivier because it's Lawrence of Arabia. And so I just thought it was, you know, Lawrence Olivier because that made a lot of sense to me. And then I had to learn who Peter O'Toole was. And goddamn, if he isn't beautiful. I once heard an anecdote that uh, if he didn't look any, or if he looked any prettier, they would call it Florence of Arabia. It was some anecdote that another actor was teasing him on. Anyway, we're going to talk about David Lean's classic, Lawrence of Arabia. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Keir Seward, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who just wants to say, Austin, I would always support your desert revolt, even if my country came in with some uh, some slightly dodgy treaties to try and undermine it. I'm Austin Hayden-Smith, philosopher, actor, writer, etc., etc., etc. Yeah, and I got some questions about this historically from the perspective of wondering about the British Empire's dealings in the Middle East. So I'm sure we'll have some interesting conversation about that. Are you, um, um, are you expecting me to be an expert at this? Because that may be slightly... Uh... Uh, that's a slight overreach. I wouldn't say expert, but considering that you told me that you did play... T.E. Lawrence as a child in some sort of class uh, presentation, I imagine you have some facts. Yeah, man, but that was just me pretty much reciting the movie. <laughs> I deem him one of the greatest beings alive in our time. We shall never see his like again. His name will live in history. It will live in the annals of war. It will live in the legends of Arabia. Who is he? Dick. What is your name? My name is for my friends. None of my friends is a murderer. century, controversy has raged around the name of T.E. Lawrence. No man of our time has drawn upon himself so much praise and so much criticism. Lawrence of Arabia, the man torn between two civilizations. Lawrence of Arabia, filmed against a canvas of awesome magnificence. All right, so Lawrence of Arabia is, as we kind of just briefly noted, the autobiographical tale of T.E. Lawrence. It is a film that is put together from his collection of writings, from his exploits and adventures throughout uh, Saudi Arabia during what are known as the, uh, is it the, the Arab Revolt? where uh, the tribal leaders from around uh, the Arab nations um, came together under the sort of influence, let's say, of the British uh, crown to take on the Turkish Empire um, during World War I and, uh, and after. And uh, T.E. Lawrence is a, an educated, quirky, asexual... Apparently, um, just doing a little bit of reading afterwards, uh, sort of effeminate kind of dude who doesn't seem that he would be battle prone. But once he gets out there into the desert, he becomes, at least in his own mind and in his autobiographical retelling, a great hero of the people, uniting a lot of these uh, Bedouin tribes together for the purpose of freedom and liberation from under what they view as a sort of Turkish occupation. And it's a four-hour sprawl, and you should watch it in two sittings, I would imagine, unless you have um, a cool theater and you can just immerse yourself in it, which would be a cool experience. But um, it's, uh, it's, it's well worth the watch, so I would recommend checking it out. I mean, we can talk about it. To give a synopsis of it, it's basically white dude gets recruited, goes into the desert, um, 
gets tougher, uh, runs into challenges, meets a shitload of, you know, like tribal princes and different tribal factions, and he sort of is managing their tribal issues, but then at the same time, he's also sort of taking his own initiative uh, um, on behalf of the English Empire. Uh, he goes back to England, reports what he's done. They're super excited with the initiative, but he's kind of beat up. They throw him back into the desert because he's got to go out there and finish the, do the next stage of the adventure uh, or the, of the mission. He goes back out. He's welcomed because he's a great hero at this point. Then uh, he marches on Damascus and the Bedouin people are united as an Arab people and he uh, ends up dying in a motorcycle accident, which is actually the opening scene, but... It's it's an adventure story, and I know that sounds bland and boring, but you gotta watch it because it's an amazing adventure. So, Kier, when was the last time you watched this film? Well, I've, I've got to I've got to bring you up on something historically, just quickly. Um, it's not really Saudi Arabia; it's more Jordan and Syria is kind of the region. Yeah, the Levant. Yeah, um, it's it's. I mean, obviously Saudi Arabia is kind of next door, but that's not really where most of the battle points were. So yeah, so just just in case anybody's wanting to quibble over historical elements that's that's uh, that's what it is yeah if i said saudi arabia that was a, a a misnomer i just meant arabia more generally as in a sort of uh, peoples and region but yeah you're right yeah. uh so i last saw this film when i was in university so about 10 years ago which is a, a frightening wow. thing to say that i was in university 10 years ago um was this a mandatory class because you had to watch it for like the just immense wide shots and oh no not at all this wasn't part of the syllabus it was uh, me and my housemate mm. watched it because i had because i bought it mm. on dvd because the thing is like this was one of my dad's favorite movies and it meant a lot to him and so it was one of those films that i remember him sitting mm. me and my brother yeah, this down this is a dad film this was gonna be this is this is definitely like very much a dad film but it was like he yeah. used to quote it a lot he was just really into it and you know he had his copy of the seven pillars of wisdom um and so it was just one of those he he had this evening the one night where he's just like i bought for people listening seven pillars of wisdom is the name of the book that it that is that t.e lawrence wrote. yes it's his autobiography um and so i mean basically we always had a copy of it um, but I mm. remember there was some new restored version or something that came out and he basically, he bought that and then he said this whole thing of like, we're going to spend the evening watching this and this is going to be like an education. And, you know, basically it was like, you know, um, you remember in, uh, back in the day, pop-up video where they'd be showing a music video and like little facts would pop up the whole time. That was mm. basically what yeah. watching this movie with my dad was like, he would just sort of like every, <laughs> every two minutes he'd be like, Oh, uh, this bit coming up is about this. Oh, this didn't actually happen like this, but that's kind of what people say. Historians are a bit dispute this part, you know. Uh, David mm. Lean said blah 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 about this bit. You know, it's like he was very, he, you know, it was very very mm. into it. Um, and so overall, I've seen this film about I think four or five times, um, and you know, mostly I think because it's it is it requires a. It requires commitment. You can't just sort of casually put it on. You have to commit to the idea that you're going to watch it. Um, so it's interesting because I I think when I was a kid, I was even maybe slightly bored at times by it because it's not mm. massively action-oriented. It still is a lot of people talking for the most part. Um, yeah. And then I think I liked it more when um when i got a little bit older and the last time i watched it i just remember it feeling very long because me and my housemate again we committed to watching the whole thing so we were so i, I think mm -hmm. you know in that way that when you're sitting hanging out with a buddy and you're not necessarily 100 percent paying attention to something it starts to feel long so it was interesting kind of sitting um, watching it on a laptop this time because I kind of felt once again that I feel like this is just a case of a film that is meant to be experienced in a cinema. And I liked it. Mm. I, I, you know, I always, I always like it. And I do think it's genuinely a, a great cinematic achievement and a, and a masterpiece in so many ways. But it is that thing of I sort of sat and I thought, 
I will never truly be able to appreciate this film fully until I can actually watch it on a big screen. You know, I think the the second closest that, that I can imagine myself getting to that big screen feeling is if you either have like a group of friends or just like you and a partner are like, hey, uh, we're doing a movie marathon Friday night, Saturday night, whatever night when you're not rushed. And you're just like, we have no constraints, social media. I mean, you could even have, you could have your social media. I don't care. You could be tweet during it because it, it is, like Kier says, there are some downtime. So fuck it. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be like fully a- a- attentive, but you should. Um, And you've got a big screen and you've got a good sound system and you've got snacks and you intentionally have an intermission. And you're like, at two hours or whatever, we're going to have an intermission. Right. And then you do it that way. And then you take like a, I don't know if it's you and your partner, then you go and you bang. If it's you and some friends, fuck it, you can bang too, or I don't know, grab a beer or go out in the backyard and have a cigarette or go for a walk or something, grab some food. Can you bang in the back garden? Yeah, bang in the back garden. I mean, whatever you got to do to kind of just shake off the cobwebs a little bit from sitting down for two hours. And then you come back and you finish it. I think that would be a close second, but I, I absolutely agree. I feel like I would want to see this. And this is totally my romantic uh, vision of what the theater is for me, right? But in like an old picture house where it's got like the the sort of scarlet curtains, the big red curtains, you know, and maybe even like some sort of live orchestra that (laughs) is playing or something. That would be the most perfect setting for this film. You know how like those art museums oftentimes will do like a a live accompaniment or something like that would be amazing. Yeah, because there is a fair amount of history and political um, things that are going on in, purely in conversation. Like people are just discussing things that have happened or discussing things that are going to happen or like, uh, you know, it, it means that you do kind of have to pay attention. Otherwise, you know, you can kind of miss why somebody's upset with somebody else or, you know, and I, I, I think I think it is a film that rewards you for actually giving it its 100% full attention. So the thing I would worry about if you watched it with a group of friends is that I've, my experience with watching films with a group of friends is generally that you watch something much more casually. Um, and I'm not sure I think it's a film that's really meant to be watched casually. But it is, it is interesting, like you said, that it's kind of like got this kind of dad film reputation because underneath the surface there's a lot of things that you wouldn't think of like is necessarily a more traditional um the sort of traditional male thing would sort of go towards because obviously there's a, there's a he's not really a manly guy no no not at all he's i mean even just from looking at actual photos of him he does look a lot like peter o'toole well you know he was only five foot five as well that's what i heard the big difference was is the height difference so if he's only five five not only is he not bulky but he's just a pretty diminutive figure i don't know and then you there know there are also these interesting stories about whether or not he was gay or whether or not he was asexual not having known or having any video of the uh, real t.e lawrence the way that peter o'toole portrays him is definitely as a bit more effeminate it actually works really well though i think you get the sense that there's something there's a drive in him and you know he kind of finds parts about him unleashed you know like when he kills somebody and he says that he likes it and and that sort of scares him it it actually works really well that he isn't just this rock you know Dwayne Johnson kind of physical figure which you know obviously if that fool shows up then people are gonna be like okay that's obviously a god walking on earth so we're going to follow him (laughs) you know well and I think that's the interesting thing too is like if you compare to like Lean said he took um, a lot of visual inspiration from the searchers And so if you compare T.E. Lawrence to, like, you know, John Wayne and the Searchers, they cut a very different kind of physical presence, and they have a very different aura about them. And so, yeah, I think there's something kind of interesting in the fact that, you know, we we so associate this with a kind kind of masculine genre, but at the same time, he's actually a much more, he he doesn't really fit like an obvious archetype within that, even though, say, his actions potentially do, him as a character really doesn't. He has to rely on other resources, we might say. A toughness, a will, a resolve. It's not always a physical strength. His his charm, his intellect, obviously, is something that he uses to great success. And so it is. It, it makes him a very resourceful person. I mean, the guy was a polyglot. He spoke like seven languages, which made it easy for him to be able to navigate 
into various different situations because he could speak like I can't remember what it's like French and German and Latin and so he was able to use those things he's almost more like a military intelligence kind of guy well he was a spy do you know because that's the interesting thing oh. that the film leaves out is that early on because the film basically obviously leaves out everything before um, he ends up being assigned to go you know uh, talk to the tribes but he'd actually worked for the British military already because he was an archaeologist he was already really fascinated by Arab culture Mm. So he'd done a lot of archaeological digs in um, what was at the time the Ottoman Empire. So he was actually um, contacted by the British government to work as a spy, um, you know, to keep an eye on what was going on with, um, you know, so Ottoman trains um, near the archaeological site. Mm. So he had actually... So he was a, he was a historian. He was an archaeologist. He was a he was a spy. He was. But the main reason he wasn't on the front was because he was five foot five, so he was too short for the <laughs> army. Looking at the historical accuracy of this film, is some of it's quite contentious. But at the same time, I would say it's more a thing that you have to look at it as the broad strokes are there rather than this is like a a faithful thing. I think the film, like a lot of you know, Hollywood movies it seeks to kind of simplify the hero down as much as possible. So a lot of things that Lawrence did are kind of, it's sort of, the, the Brits are more kind of left to be more like an outside antagonist, whereas, and, and Lawrence is kind of made more of a lone figure. Whereas in actual fact, there were quite a lot of other British officers who were also consulting, who were part of, um, you know, Lawrence's effort. Uh, you know, for instance, when they also took Aqaba, the Brits were also, the Navy was also involved in it. The Brits were very aware of what was going on. So that whole scene where he returns and they go like, what, who told you to take Aqaba? Well, in actual historical fact, um, you told him to take Aqaba. Um, (laughs) And, um, you know, so also Lawrence was very well, very aware of the Sykes-Picot agreement. Um, you know, it was something he later felt very guilty about, but he was not something that, that blindsided him or shocked him. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's things like that where it's very much about trying to create a more sort of streamlined movie character. There's also quite a few sort of composite characters. Um, so it's, it's just kind of, it's, it's the usual sort of stuff that you expect from, um, from, uh, you know, from any kind of like a uh, big historical film. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's probably better to read this film almost as a British myth and every country and every people have their stories that they tell. I mean, shoot, even this amazing series that you turned me on to that everybody should be watching right now on HBO, the miniseries, the Chernobyl miniseries, the woman who plays the primary nuclear doctor wasn't a single figure that went on this campaign, but she's a composite of various other nuclear scientists. And when the thing is for someone like me, who's very, like I said to Alex while we were watching it, I bet that I bet she's a composite, you know, in a film, it's easier to give something to one character than to have 10 different characters show up and people have to remember which one's which. If for instance, if all of their actions are towards a common purpose, it's easier to give all those actions to one person who can be representative of the whole. I think something very interesting about this film is it represents something impossible now Mm. because it's this idea of the impressiveness of scale as a spectacle point so it's like this idea that if you went into this film in 1962 you were seeing this immense production with these 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 giant sets these giant locations these giant vistas and that was probably the only place you were going to see that you weren't going to go on television and watch like something where you get to see like a bunch of like exciting foreign landscapes and stuff like that. I mean, most television was kind of like stuff on like crummy little sets and it looked cheap and it was all formed in uh, filmed in a, in a square aspect ratio. You know, I think now part of the democratization, not only of technology, but also in the viewing platform means that, you know, I can go on YouTube right now and I can find drone shots of like the Sahara Desert, you know, that probably somebody shot for like no money. You know, somebody just owns a drone and they just uploaded it themselves. So it's not exciting. If you put in a modern audience, you're like Aquaman had shots in it of the desert. And I'm kind of like, this is the sort of thing that now, uh, uh, this doesn't impress a modern audience. They just take it as read that this is just, you know, yeah, that, okay, that's, that's the Sahara. Okay, cool. But in 1962, all of this stuff was very impressive. It's part of why you went to the cinema. And I think there's a beautiful wonderment 
that's lost. And I think I brought this up mm-hmm. kind of with Jurassic Park as well, this idea that just the idea of seeing dinosaurs was enough. Like that it was exciting just to look at somebody had seen people, you know, be with dinosaurs. And now we're at the point where it's, you know, people like, yeah, we're past dinosaurs. Uh, what can they do? Can they be militarized? You know, <laughs> it's, it's the same now. You know, it's like you can you can if you if you made Lawrence of Arabia now, you know, there's a very good chance like a lot of it did be. Well, I mean, it's going to be too hard to go out there and shoot it. The conditions are going to be bad. You know, maybe maybe we could just green screen it. Well, what do you think about a film like Mad Max? Yeah, no, and I think I think Mad Max is an interesting one to bring up because actually Mad Max has a lot of more classical techniques. And, and I mean, it's probably kind of some of the closest I'd say to that. I'd actually weirdly say, even though it's very CGI-oriented, I would weirdly say Aquaman is one of the closest I've seen to modern blockbusters trying to echo a more David Lean idea of scale as this kind of... Did you of ever see Australia, piece the of, Jackman film? I did, and that film is really killed by some bad CGI. I didn't mind it. I actually kind of liked it um because again i liked the way it was kind of echoes this sort of classical yeah, it's kind of uh, trying know, storytelling to do that motif. a little bit yeah um here's my question though when you watch lawrence of arabia are you able to tap into that 1962 beauty that romanticism or are you jaded a little bit I think I can to a certain extent because I'm looking at it from a very practical standpoint and just looking at – so I'm, I'm even looking at things like where they blow up the train and the train comes off the tracks. So I'm like, that was a fucking train. They actually just, you know, derailed a train on, on, on camera, you know, or just thinking about like when you see you, – you go up to the big shot um, where they're going into Aqaba and I'm kind of like, that's a lot of fucking extras that they had to coordinate to get to do that. You know, it's hmm. – things like that I, I found very – yeah, and I mean, you know, again, um, the scene at the um, at the well at the beginning, uh, where they first meet Omar Sharif's character, and which is really funny because when I was talking to my mom last night, and I brought up that we we're watching Lawrence Arabia, and I said something about how much I liked Omar Sharif, and, and she went, "Well, Omar Sharif, he was just." Stunning. Um, <laughs> the ladies back in the day, they loved them some Omar Sharif. I wonder. I wonder. I wonder if he's one of like the first Middle Eastern sex symbols to be thrust into the limelight. I mean, he must be. I mean, I'm, I'm sure maybe there were other figures, but the with the scale and the scope. I mean, was he nominated for his role in Lawrence of Arabia? No, oh, he was nominated. He didn't win. Peter O'Toole okay. lost to um, Gregory Peck for To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, okay. But, I mean, the, the fact is is that in 1962, in a film where a lot of the Middle Eastern roles are played by white people, obviously, uh, in this film in particular, you've got two prominent roles that are played by white dudes. Um, then you've got, you've got an actual genuine Egyptian actor playing uh, a Middle Eastern role. And in 1962, that's, that's got to be relatively unheard of. It was interesting, though, because it was less than I thought in the sense that you have the kind of two prominent ones. And then outside of that, pretty much everyone is Middle Eastern. Um, and even then, one of those white dudes is actually a Mexican, so it's not like he's... Oh, that's right. He is Mexican. That scene at the well is just so beautifully shot, and the way that they're using, that they're using the depth of the image and the scope of the image, um, like the distance on it, is just so beautiful. I mean, the way how he just sort of walks up. Though while I was watching it, I did think it made me think a little bit of like the scene in the Holy Grail where like the two, uh, or the two guards are like standing there and you just keep seeing John Cleese like running up at a distance and he never gets closer. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But that, that whole scene is just, I think that's probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And it's just such a, a brilliant introduction of a character. And I think, you know, again, their relationship is something I get very involved in. I think he's fantastic. But again, it's there somewhere where I'm getting very involved in the scale of things. Apparently, uh, Omar Sharif lost Best Supporting Actor to Ed Begley for Sweet Bird of Youth, which is a film I have never heard of. Omar Sharif is kind of an interesting one because, you know, he was an Egyptian actor. And actually, funnily enough, his role was, I can't remember who, but it was originally supposed to go to a white guy. And for whatever reason, they ended up casting Omar Sharif, and that guy couldn't do it, and so they ended up casting Omar Sharif instead. And yeah, no, it is it is interesting how in the '60s you just suddenly had this guy come out who was one a sex symbol, but two was also a bankable star because then he went and did Doctor Zhivago, and and of course, it, most importantly, eventually ends up in Top Secret next to Val Kilmer. <laughs> most importantly, it's interesting because I was thinking about 
what to make of, like, the quote-unquote brown face. And of obviously this film has certain uncomfortable allusions to the whole kind of white savior narrative that's obviously people like 100%. to bring up a lot. And I think the interesting thing that you can say about it is, certainly with Alec Guinness, I think you can say that the film's representation is not caricatured, and that helps. It doesn't feel like, you know, it's white guys putting on a, a, a an overly stereotyped racialized idea of it's not mickey rooney here no exactly and i think that helps a well lot. i think i think they're, they're craftsmen you know alec guinness is a, a is a serious actor i mean not i guess mickey rooney's an actor he's a serious act i mean he's a comedic actor but i mean it's not like he doesn't take his trade seriously is what i mean but and he was also desperate to be in this film because he was obsessed with t.e lawrence and played him on the stage and basically wanted to play Lawrence but was too old so I mean he was he, too old yeah he basically said he'd take any part they'd give him and so it makes a lot of sense that he would come with care and concern and respect apparently I guess his accent too he learned a lot from Omar Sharif which means that he actually was trying to be authentic to an Arab person's um, visage on screen and that doesn't mean that you know, in contemporary parlance that we wouldn't say that there's something problematic about the film. But let's just acknowledge that. I think that's part of recognizing that this film is a British myth. I think the thing that you can very much say uh, about these things sometimes is I think it's okay to say that things exist within the context of their time. And we can say now that definitely if somebody was making this film now, it would not be appropriate for somebody to be doing this. But at the same time, I mean, I mean, what do you want to do? You want to say that Lawrence of Arabia is just a terrible film because of this one element of it? I mean, because I right. think you're going to really start to struggle to, you know, again, it's the throwing the baby out with the bathwater element of it. And, and I think for me, I kind of think, well, I was, I was going to say real quick, I think, I think that you can, you can recognize that from an analytical perspective, yeah, sure, there are some limitations to what this film is doing because the perspective that it comes from, which is that it is coming from one person's sort of self-aggrandizing story of his own exploits and adventures in the desert, for one. But then, two, there's also a sense in which um, there is this uncontested view of, um, of like, the value of the British Empire. And, I mean, not entirely. I mean, because there is some... some uh, push and pull um between i would Lawrence say this film and... is not particularly pro-british empire I, but it's still it, it's still it, it shows that there are fractures in the british empire but it still shows that it was the british empire that was the galvanizing the great man from out of the british empire that was the galvanizing singular force rather than allowing if this film were told maybe from the perspective of like uh, prince faisal's descendants or something like that um, this film would be told much more of what what was their contribution. They're kind of more just ancillary to Lawrence's great man. You know what I mean? Mm. And I feel like that's that's what I'm saying. Not that it's wrong. Not that we make a value judgment that it's good or bad. Therefore, but it, we have to recognize that it's told from a limited perspective. And so for me, you can you can make that kind of analysis without making a value judgment on ah. You know, it's yeah. racist or it's I, I do. Whatever. I think I'm just a little bit on edge because I'm very tired of postmodern look at film which is basically to say that films are valueless because they come from a different era it, it comes from uh, uh you know it, again it's like that idea of it comes from a white british person therefore it's wrong and bad you know it's that very simplistic depiction there's that very simplistic idea of how we should engage with art and i think that's mm. the thing is this nuanced things where you can two things can be true at once it can be a great and interesting film but it can also have a flawed perspective those two things can be true simultaneously yeah, absolutely but i think the interesting question i do have though is um is it brownface if it's a mexican actor yeah you know what's funny i actually i didn't know until whatever two nights ago whenever i finished the film that anthony quinn was even mexican just because his name anthony quinn is very not mexican well his father was uh his father was irish and that's what it was is that he was mixed race but he grew up originally in mexico and then moved to la see i just kind of thought he was a tan a tan white dude but this is the interesting thing that i think within this this discussion that so rarely gets brought up which is this idea that racial lines are far more they're far more malleable than people think at a certain point you're also going from the standpoint that 
if if you get too bogged down in this, are you saying Indian actors can't play Middle Eastern or vice versa? Are you saying people from the Mediterranean? There's people from the Mediterranean who look darker than people in the Middle East. Are you telling me they can't play Middle Eastern people when Antonio Banderas, who's Spanish? played a Middle Eastern person in The 13th Warrior, uh, next to Armar Sharif, incidentally. Um, is, um, is that wrong? I mean, uh, at a certain point, you know, I'm, again, I'm, you know, I'm half Scottish. Um, and, I mean, what says that just because somebody's white means that they have any understanding? Why is Mel Gibson playing, uh, you know, a Scot, not some form of problematic in some sort of format? And, you know, I understand why the reasoning is that we have a really bad history within Hollywood of people being caricatured through pretending to be other races. And I think that that's wrong. But I also think that the attempt to correct that goes too far sometimes, where people then go like, oh, you can't play that unless you are actually Jewish, because you won't understand, you know, the, the real feeling. And I'm, I'm just like, I just, I'm sorry, I just don't buy that. And so again, like, so here's the interesting thing, is I think like Anthony Quinn without, you know, and I actually think the interesting thing is I do think he's darkened his skin here, and I think he's even wearing a fake nose, which I do think is problematic. But... In theory, I don't think there's anything wrong with Anthony Quinn playing a Middle Eastern person, especially if I, I bet if he goes out in the sun, he probably gets quite tan and probably would look pretty convincing. You know who I always think of when we talk about this? Because for the longest time, I've just been so confused as to what his ethnic background is. And I know that he's got like a Spanish-English background, but Alfred Molina. Oh, yeah. He's, he's one of those just, guys. He's just Italian. That's his, that's his background is that he's, he's um, of Italian descent and that's it. And so like he – and he plays every – he's like – a Mexican dude in um, in Maverick and Frida. Uh, he, yeah. I mean, he, he he's played Middle he Eastern people. Yeah, he's very so he's same with Middle Ben Kingsley. Ben Kingsley is very ethnically uh, kind of malleable. But the thing is interesting is nobody gives Alfred Molina shit. Like, I think I've the interesting thing anybody. is because nobody no because he's not big enough for people to really know what his actual ethnic background is. So people just assume. He's 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 correct. It only becomes a thing when people recognize the stars um, who are doing it. So it's like, you know, it only becomes a problem when people know who that person is. And, you know, because I think that there's a, an easy soapbox to get up on sometimes with these things. But, you know, it was the same thing. You know, you have this new Aladdin film coming out and people there were people who were going like, how dare you cast a, a half American, half. Indian, I think she's half American, half Indian, um, woman in, um, in the lead of this story about the Middle East. I'm like, Agrippa's not a real place. Like, there's no, you know, it's about as real as, say, like, Cinderella's Castle or, you know, Scotland in Brave. They're not real places. Chill the fuck out. Also, like, I don't want to be an asshole, but when you're, when you are looking, when you're a casting director or you're a director and you're looking for that something, whatever it is, sometimes you don't know exactly what that something is and it walks into the room and you're like, holy shit, this person has something, right? And you're doing the best you can, but that something doesn't exist everywhere all the time for the people that walk in your doors. That's not to say that there aren't people around the world that aren't capable of doing a performance, but in a way, it kind of is saying that. Not everybody can do the things that that need to be done to fulfill the mind of the people that are actually trying to do it. And then you might say, well, then they need to change their uh, their their presuppositions with their image. It, again, it's not that easy, guys. I mean, there are a handful of really talented people that can do the things for a given role that are asked of them. And sometimes a person walks in the door and you're like, that's the fucking person. And you don't have time to vet their history and be like, well, let's make sure they're actually from Arabian descent and that their heritage goes back to, I don't know, these particular Sunni, uh, I don't know, tribal peoples or something like that. Like, that's not, that's not how it works. And we can do the best we can and we can continue to recalibrate and refine our process um, on the creative side, but we got We also have to recognize the limitations that are imposed. Well, the problem too us, is there's you know? any number of variations that you can keep going down to say that it's not good enough. You can keep doing it and then kind of go like to to the point where you kind of start going like, well, you know, they weren't raised by a single mother in this region of such and such, so they won't understand. You know, it's it's that you can keep doing that. There's no point where you're ever going to get someone who's the exact perfect version of whatever it is you're trying to portray. You know, you're still only hitting it in the broad strokes. Right. I mean, but this is part of the problem, though, with the whole logic of, of representation as being the paramount for 
political for political um, expression anyway, though. And and on the artistic side, you know, we kind of have to, you know, we have to realize that people are aware and they are doing their best. We'll keep we'll keep doing better and we'll keep holding them to a higher standard. But at the same time, maybe it's just the internet that hates. Oh yeah, yeah. It's just <laughs> if we could just get rid of the internet, that would be good. Um, but or at least the people on the internet. It just, it just makes people. It just makes them so much more dramatic. It does. About it every does. It thing, does. So. You know, and that's the thing. It's like it's so easy to just sit behind a, a keyboard and be outraged about things. But I mean, here's here's be angry. this this. <laughs> It brings an interesting point, though, because um, it brings us into a theme that I very much identify with within this film, which is the idea of a person who doesn't really feel part of any culture. I mean, the way that he feels kind of alienated from mm. from the UK, but at the same time is kind of wants to be part of this kind of this, this these these and 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 so has so much invested in this idea of a sort of united Arab nation, but yet at the same time can never totally be 100% part of it. I find that theme within it really fascinating. I also think there's something really interesting visually in this man who looks almost so alien because he's so blonde and his Mm. eyes are so strangely piercing. I mean, like when you put him in the middle of the desert, he's just looking out with his eyes. It just, it looks so, he looks like an alien. It's so sort of, it, it, it's, it's mm. so fascinating. You could, and you also, you couldn't find a person who looks more different from the people of the region. And I think it's just really fascinating to me, this idea of how he's on this quest essentially to find some kind of place that he belongs or craft some kind of home that he is never going to find. And it's interesting that whole bit where he then tries to go back and go, I just want a normal job and to be a normal person and is kind of forced mm-hmm. to have to go back again. And yeah, and I, I, I think though that theme really struck me in a big way on this go around. Mm. Yeah, there's that that one scene and I think he, it's when he's with Omar Sharif and he's got his top off and he's got his white skin and he's kind of pulling at it and he's saying like this, this is kind of what I kind of saying that this will always prevent me from being a part of, of this community, which is a pretty interesting, an interesting theme because it makes me wonder what is really his motivation? Is he really concerned with the freedom of the Arab peoples from under the thumb of what he sees as being an oppressive Turkish regime? Or is there some sort of, he has illusions of grandeur for himself that, you know, he's learned and he's read. I mean, he ends up translating Homer later on. So is he trying to be one of these mythic figures? And so when he writes his own autobiographical account, is that basically his depiction of himself as Odysseus or something along those lines. I I don't know because I think there's a tension there because yes, he does seem to genuinely care for these people, but that care seems to be sort of limited also by his own individual pursuits. And I I kind of wonder how much of this is that he's trying to find a home? How much of this is him trying to, I don't know, assume the position of the hero from the literary classics that he has uh, grown up with and become so accustomed? I will say just quickly, um, that this depiction of Lawrence is not necessarily in line with the way Lawrence depicts himself in the seventh, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. I mean, even though technically the film is based off the Seven Pillars of Wisdom, there's been a lot of note of the fact that it looks like it's also taken a lot of inspiration from several other um, biographies written about Lawrence, which were a little bit more critical. Okay. Um, and I think, so I think it's don't go from the supposition that this is how Lawrence is presenting himself. Because in fact, actually, Lawrence's okay. brother was very angry at the film, was very publicly came out against it. Um uh, because, you know, which, as we know, in um, the case uh, in cases like Green Book, obviously means the film is valueless. Was what what was what caused his brother to come out? Like what it was, was I think it was the I think and it was with. something that got a lot of criticism um, was the depiction of him as having bloodlust. Um, I think he was also mm, not yeah. very keen on the idea of Lawrence, um, the sort of allusions to him being homosexual and it's also that Mm. whole story um about him and when he was taken prisoner it's also been highly disputed i mean again i i'm not an expert in this this is kind of some of this is the, the the tangential research i did over the last like couple of days but you know there's there's various versions of what people think actually happened there but it's pretty well thought that the way Lawrence described it in his book is not actually true biographers think that he had some kind of homosexual experience that was 
perhaps originally meant to be meant to be consensual and then turn to something else and then you know i mm. it's debated and i don't I'm, i don't want to claim that i actually know the ins and outs that well but i i like i said like the big thing is with this is this is very much the film's idea of lawrence as a character it's not necessarily what lawrence's idea of himself as a character was okay so then yeah so then maybe maybe i should be careful and not say Lawrence the historical figure but definitely Lawrence this character is portrayed as sort of at least it, it came across to me that he is trying to he's really enjoying the fact that he is being held up as this great figure in the desert when he's welcomed by these people and so I always wonder then so what are his motivations is is he really concerned with freedom because he does mention that a couple of times right that 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 his goal is the freedom of the Arab people and and that's great, but I also, you know, I'm always wondering, you know, like like in like in Braveheart, you mentioned Braveheart earlier, when Mel Gibson screams out freedom, uh, that that isn't to say that the Scottish people weren't seeking freedom from the 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 oppressive rule of the English uh, crown, but it's told in a very American Hollywood. Conception well, I mean, Braveheart freedom basically is. has no right. relation to anything that ever <laughs> happened in history. So, I mean, it's it's <laughs> right. I mean, you, you're right very much in the idea that freedom conceptually there is much more something that's equated to, uh, uh, you know, an American idea of what they of, of 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 what works as a sort of mythological figure rather than anything that's that's going on at the time. Um, right. Especially down to the fact that, you know, again, I mean, the interesting thing that I that you, you sort of run into with Lawrence of Arabia here as well is this idea that the world is still fairly new to the concept of nation states. Um, so you have all yeah. these tribes in the desert that have existed for long periods of time in a much more nomadic fashion, doing their own thing. And suddenly they're being. Uh, there, the the area that they're used to is is you have the Ottomans come in and being like this belongs to us now. It's it's like this thing where they're kind of essentially responding to this as okay, well, as long as we can keep doing our own thing, you can call the land whatever the fuck you want. Um, and then the Brits and the French then come in after World War One and say, okay, now we're making these into these countries. And then they go like, well, okay, but. Like, so you've just arbitrarily put a border here, but that's part of our land that we roam around and do this on. Like, we, we don't work within the, this, this border doesn't make any sense based on who lives here. Um, and that's right. part of the grave problem of the Middle East is this idea of arbitrarily trying to create these, you know, sort of nation straight structures around people who were never particularly, who, who were never like unified with each other. They were essentially their own small nations moving from place to place and, you know, sort of like having wars and disagreements with each other and doing their own thing. So, I mean, it's exactly like you see in Iraq with the, the Sunnis and the Shiites is that they just, they, you know, they're two people who don't like each other who were arbitrarily told that they are now a nation. And I think that's the interesting thing that you kind of hit on here is that at the end, you there's the Arab Council and there's this idea of like trying to form this um, this nation. But the problem is that ultimately these people aren't necessarily interested in being part of a nation together. It's 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 you've you've put this kind of structure on them that they're neither I mean, I don't want to keep using the word arbitrarily, but it just, it works. Uh, but arbitrarily said, this mm -hmm. has value. You know, this way of doing things has value. But they don't have any context for that. So when they're sitting there going like, uh, when, when, you're say, when you're trying to push this idea of cooperation, this idea that you have a single identity, they're like, no, I'm part of this tribe. Fuck that guy. He's not part of my tribe. It's, and I think there's something that's mm -hmm. really, really interesting about this idea, 19th century idea of the nation suddenly coming being sort of um farmed out and forced into areas that didn't come to that organically yeah and if you want to get super critical about it once you realize that the real purpose for this is largely for economic purposes to try to create peoples that are easier to deal with with regards to international treaties and for trade agreements then you start to even get a little bit more cynical about what were the motivations behind all of this right and 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 that's why this film is very in a way, it's kind of a tragic story too, 
especially now in 2019. Oh yeah, well, I, I have it. I have it written down in my notes. Real downer ending. Mm. I, I think the film sets up this really fascinating idea at the end of it of of kind of like the legacy of what's to come. Um, with in terms of the this sort of Western intervention, how it's going to um, run amok and how ultimately it doesn't jibe with the the sort of the tribal systems that are that it's then trying to refine and change into a, a more westernized idea of society. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like trying to stick a bunch of blocks in a box that aren't meant for those blocks. When it's it's interesting because actually the end kind of made me think of made me think of Munich, uh, the Spielberg mm-hmm. movie. Did you have you ever I seen? I did Munich? a long time ago, but I don't remember it well. I find Munich really fascinating because to me, Munich is about the hollow, never-ending idea of revenge and violence, um, and it's how that cycle is ultimately deeply problematic because it'll never you could never kill enough people and i think that's kind of this idea of it leaves on this idea lawrence of arabia leaves on this idea of ultimately what progress has been made and ultimately things are probably just going to get worse yeah that's that bit when the guy that's driving in his car is like going home and they pass by all the soldiers that are going in to the desert and that they're still they're still occupying they're still there and that's why it is uh, it is a tragic film in a lot of ways. That's why I really do think it's best to kind of look at this as a as a myth, as a tragic myth. It's he's a tragic hero in all the ways that we can ascribe that term when we think about myth figures and hero figures in tragic literature. It's I know people use the word, but it is very Shakespearean. It's very Homeric. It's got this grandiosity to it that I don't know. It's not that we don't make those kinds of characters today, but I feel like people, there's a cynicism now that almost prevents us from really doing that kind of thing because it's like, oh, but that isn't historically accurate or um, he's taking himself too seriously or it's stupid to care about things or whatever it is that your kind of position is, is that there's a, always a way to kind of tear somebody down. Well, and I think it's, I think it is interesting too how little these ideas are so often about people doing research into stuff. They, they see a headline and they say, okay, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm informed now. So it's like, again, it's like they say, yeah, it's like we take it back to Green Book and they go, oh, okay, well, his family says they don't like it. Okay, well, what members of his family? How close was he with them? Like, what actual interaction with them did? Well, you know, what 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 has Don Shirley said himself in publications about um, about their relationship? It's sort of like that thing of it doesn't matter. I just saw the headline, therefore it's bad. You know, in the same way that I say, like, but but the, the simple reality is most films based off of historical figures have some point where a family member comes out <laughs> and says, I don't agree with that sure. depiction. You know, largely because films usually have to make people somewhat complicated, unless it's a case of, say, something like Bohemian Rhapsody, where, you know, you the the living people are are there pretty much to just self aggrandize themselves. Then you're kind of left with a point of kind of going like, well, you know, who, you know, obviously, you know, there's going to be people who aren't going to say that's not the version of the person Mm. I knew. But, you know, again, film's not reality. Mm. It's like I, I, you know, it's it's that thing. There's there's a sort of fallacy in this idea that a, a historical film is meant to be 100% accurate, and that's just ridiculous. Again, so if you take it back to Chernobyl, one of the things that I'm finding very interesting about Chernobyl is the way that it it, it deals with the idea of Russia as a as as a sort of authoritarian state and how how it causes problems within the. Um, not only what happened with Chernobyl, but how the the aftermath mm. of it. And in that case, you know, sure, there's things that have to be simplified down inevitably for the narrative. And there's no way that we will ever know what was being said in those rooms at that time. We can only infer. And that's the reality of it. But the broad idea of what Russia did in that time period is still there. Sure. And the complexity of not just the singular room, but how many hundreds of rooms and how many thousands of conversations and how many times did these ideas get discovered and how many books were read and articles were read and how many phone calls were made. Guess what, motherfuckers? In a five-episode series, you can't portray all of that stuff. 
So you have to reduce things down. You have to abstract. But that's because art is essentially a form of abstraction. But it's a form of abstraction that's meant to communicate something. And so that's why the, the first thing I think that's so important is to not come to a film with a position of judgment, but rather of reception to kind of receive what it is that these particular abstractions are conveying to us. And then, of course, you can engage in analysis and kind of pulling things apart and criticism and stuff like that. But first, let's allow the film to speak to us from its perspective as an abstraction. I mean, I'm talking about like historical films as an abstraction of these And I think, films. you know, a couple of good examples here. Okay, so technically, yes, um, the Arabs did reach... Um, did reach Aqaba before the Brits, but they did not reach it before the Australians. The Australians were actually the first ones to... Uh, so, not Aqaba, sorry. Damascus? Um, uh, mm. Damascus. Yeah. The Australians were actually the first to enter Damascus. Mm. Um, they got there before the Arabs. But what does that matter? Like, what difference does that make if you had a character go like, well, the Australians actually got here first, but then the Arabs got here. I mean, what what difference would that actually make in the narrative? It actually works just more succinctly to say the Arabs got there first because it works for where the narrative is going. Because, again, it doesn't change what the history was. It just, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an incidental fact. Mm. Then you have, um, or, for instance, the council actually wasn't disbanded until 1920. But... Essentially, what the film is doing is it's trying to give you a flavor of the idea of what the overall problems were. So the point is, if you then sort of, I mean, then it just creates more narrative problems for you then to have to wait two years before the council disbands. You know, it's easier to have Lawrence there for him, for us to view the problems through his eyes and for it to be about the the, uh, the destruction of it then. It, 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 it simplifies it down. And I will say there is a, an element where... Um, Certainly, part of this man was was aided by the French, but also the whole idea that the Brits were completely unwilling to help um, the council at all is also not true. So it's kind of that thing of, again, you have to kind of find a way to thematically create something that works within the narrative and has the essence of truth, even if it's not necessarily 100% yeah. true. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then all of that is filtered from, or I guess determined by... And filtered through the lens of the storyteller. What is the angle that they are? The thing you could level at this film a lot is that because because part of the the, the point at the end is the Sykes Pico agreement and how essentially um, the Arabs get fucked over by the British and the yeah. French. You need the Brits to narratively be moving towards that point over the course of the film. So the film is much more antagonistic to the British officers and the British cause within this than it really should be historically because the Brits gave a lot more support to Lawrence than it's implied and were much more involved than it's implied. Um, so it's a, so it's, it's things like that mm. where ultimately what we need is we need the audience to read at the end that the Brits kind of fuck over the Arabs. Um, so you need to build from that standpoint and move forward. And, you know, again, maybe some people look at that as, as false or lying, but to me, it's just good narrative storytelling. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, I had a lot of fun actually watching this film. I hadn't seen it since I was a kid, and um, it was nice to revisit it. I did get kind of sucked into the romanticism of the landscape and the desert and the sunsets, and I actually... What's, what's your favorite part? Well, you know what's funny? I actually think, like, the battle scenes are actually my least favorite part of this film. Um... So I don't know what my favorite singular part is. It's, you know, it, I'd have to sit down and really try to pay attention. But the things that stand out in my mind when someone mentions the film, one, I remember his angelic face because uh, Peter O'Toole is, you know, just a, a very, you know, he, he, I don't know if he's got a ton of makeup on or what, but he is just done up very beautifully in this film. Um, so that's the one thing. But then also just the the contrast of endless desert, the scale of the what is it, 65 millimeter wide, uh, wide, super wide shots, um, and then sunsets, sunrises, um, vast amounts of people, like when they're sitting at the well, you just have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of extras and things like that, that, that stand out in my mind. So it's almost formally uh, the things that stand out, I guess, when I think of the film, or at, since I've been thinking about it over the last couple of days. There's just a lot of great kind of like 
visually poetic moments. Like again, I I, I always think that that scene where he um, he sees like the the um, the the smoke stacks of the of the boat mm. going over the sand mm. dune and realizes they found the Suez Canal. Um, you know, I, I, I also, again, like I just, I, I love the way that scene at the well plays out and there's these kind of, this kind of slow kind of build. Mm. Um, and you know, and I just love that whole conversation between, um, between Omar Sharif and, uh, Peter O'Toole at the well. Um, mm. I mean, there's just, um, it's hard even for me to, cause it's, because it's a film that's so, you know, because it's so long, it, it does feel like it has these little episodes to mm. it. I mean, we didn't you even know, talk so about Alec Guinness, really. Like, you know, the the role of Faisal in the tent when they're kind of negotiating things and when he first starts to realize that, that Lawrence is someone that he can kind of ally with. I mean, there's some, like you say, there are some great mm-hmm. episodic moments scattered throughout. Or the bit where he, he, he goes back to, you know, find the guy in the baking sun and then later. Mm, great, yeah has to execute the guy you know Mm. it's a you know there's there's just so many great bits to it and it's 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 very hard because you know already i'm feeling guilty because i'm kind of like you know you've got this great movie and we spent a lot of time arbitrating things like brown face and the political (laughs) um and and the political legacy of the middle east and you know you kind of feel like i would have liked part of me feels like we should have actually delved into you know, what was actually happening in the film. And I think that's the problem with a film like this. It is very hard to actually get through, um, you know, everything you could discuss about it within a, a sort of casual hour long conversation. Mm. And you didn't even get to talk about quicksand. No, I didn't, which, you know, became a problem on Facebook last night. Cause <laughs> I, I found out that, uh, the idea of quicksand as like what we think of in the movies where you fall, you get caught in it and sucks you in until you're over your head and you, you, you drown in sand. That's not actually true. You, most likely you just get your feet caught, which obviously is a problem because if you can't free your feet, then, you know, you could die of exposure. So it's not a, wouldn't, you can die from quicksand, but it's, it's still fairly unlikely. <laughs> um, it, it's, you know, you're not you're not ever going to get submerged in quicksand. But um, but apparently, you know, I didn't word it right, and people got annoyed that I was suggesting that quicksand didn't uh, exist. And there was a yes, big it does, thing it just on doesn't, just doesn't exist like we think it does. In there the was movies. a big thing on Twitter a couple months back where somebody tweeted out something along the lines of, you know, when I was a kid, I thought quicksand would factor much more heavily in my life than it has um, from what I was told in movies and it, you know, went viral and hundreds of thousands of people retweeted. And I was like, that's actually pretty funny. Cause there's a lot of these things like the Bermuda triangle and quicksand and these various things that as a child, maybe it was just like, you know, the, the eighties and nineties in the films, these things were honed in on, but these things were like great threats that I thought would perpetually loom over my life. <laughs> and they don't have any impact. I lived in a fucking desert state, you know, and uh, yeah, the quicksand never factored into my life at all, <laughs> even though all the Westerns seem to involve somebody getting caught in quicksand at yep, some point. I know, man. I feel you, though. I, I apologize for all the Lawrence of Arabia fans out there, because I don't feel like we, we really, we touched on the film enough, because it's, it's, it is a fantastic movie. But again, I feel like it's one of I, I, this is becoming my catchphrase, but I do feel like you could talk about the film for about five mm. hours. You know, it's a there's, there's a lot to go over. Mm. Maybe that we. I mean, we didn't talk about Lean. We didn't talk about. We didn't really talk that much about Peter O'Toole. Yeah, but again, like you say, I mean, how do you talk about a four-hour epic in an hour? It's it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. I know. We scratched the surface. Maybe we can revisit it another day, or maybe we'll just do a callback periodically throughout the rest of our time doing this podcast and we inch by inch kind of work our way through finishing our discussion of the film you're the most extraordinary man i ever met leave me alone huh? leave me alone jose ferrer as the turkish bay your skin is very fair also starring anthony quayle claude rains arthur kennedy with omar sharif as ali and Peter O'Toole as Lawrence. All right, Austin, so I can't really decide what to do next week, so I'm going to give you options. Cool. Okay, so could do a period drama. Okay. could do a war film. We could do a crime movie, or we could do a comedy. 
Okay. So what are you in the mood for? Either a period so, drama or a war film. We just did a war film. I'm kind of in the mood for a period drama. You want you want very austere English people in costumes? I mean, is that what the period drama is? That's what it's going to be. Well, let's do it. All right. So, well, this is going to be got to become a theme too because uh, it's a film dealing a lot, shockingly, with class. Um, it is uh, the Robert Altman film Gosford Park. I've never seen Gosford Park. Gosford Park is great. My main thing that I would do is pay very close attention because um, the film involves an awful lot of saying who's related to who and what their background <laughs> is, um, and okay. you will get lost if you don't pay attention very quickly. Uh, but it um, has a great ensemble cast. It's one of just the this great cast of like you know just British actors. Um, with also um, Ryan Philippe doing the worst Scottish accent you've ever heard in your entire life. <laughs> okay. All right. Sounds good. I'm looking forward but to it's, it. But it's probably my favorite Robert Altman film. Yes, even more than MASH or The Player or any other Altman films. I, I love Gosford Park. Okay. Um, and uh, it's just a who's who of British acting talent, and it's fucking fantastic. And written by Julian Fellows, who later went on to create Gosford, sorry, Gosford, uh, Downton Abbey. Oh, cool. All right. And, and I will say this much. I, I will give you this hint to Austin. Um, it's not what you think it is. So it's, it's, yes, it's an austere British drama set in a, set in a, a, a mansion, but it is not what you think it is. Ew. Okay. I'm intrigued. Let's do it. All right, cool. So next week, Gosford Park. In the meantime, um, if you want to see our back catalog, go check out uh, idigthismovie.com. Uh, you can see my work at uh, kiosiewit.com. You can follow me on an Instagram at Breaking Point Flicks. Yeah, hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, Instagram, A-U-S underscore H-A-Y. That's pretty much where I communicate. Okay, awesome. And we will see you next week. Later. <laughs>